Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. You all may remember, at the midst of the last high point in the COVID crisis back in mid-April, Trump wanted everyone back in church by Easter. The crazy part was that there were many churches, particularly evangelical ones, that wanted to obey. Last week in Arizona, the president held a mini-rally at an evangelical megachurch where the pastors who clearly had no understanding of science assured everyone of a magical filtration system that would clear out 99% of the virus. While Trump's numbers free-fall in almost every demographic group, white evangelicals remain the most steadfast. Many wonder how foundational Christianity, based on the social justice teachings of Jesus, has morphed into a culture that is more interested in testosterone than in tithing, more interested in a kind of crude masculinity than in compassion. We're going to try and understand this today with my guest, Kristen Dumez. She's a professor of history at Calvin University, the author of the previous book, The New Gospel for Women. She's written for the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and Religion and Politics. Her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And it is my pleasure to welcome Kristen Dumez here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Kristen Dumez, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. How did testosterone, Christianity, and Trump all get conflated? (laughs) Well, to understand that, you have to go back in time. Um, So I'm a historian, and it's hard to know where to start with this story, but I think that the 1960s and 1970s are a really critical moment. That's when we have folks like James Dobson of Focus on the Family, right, coming into prominence. And uh, Dobson was really worried about the state of masculinity. He was worried about American families, and he was worried about American manhood. Uh, And this is in the context of the rise of feminism, um, but also the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. And there was this anxiety about white uh, masculinity and white masculine leadership. It really seemed under attack. And so evangelicals like Dobson started to write about, well, family values, evangelicalism. And these family values were really centered on shoring up the authority of the patriarch, of the father. Um, So children must be disciplined so that they respect that authority. And feminism to them was a huge threat because in in their opinion, feminism was trying to erase God-given differences between men and women. And testosterone was kind of key to that, the difference that God filled men with testosterone so that they could be strong and aggressive, so that they could protect their wives and children, they could protect Christianity, they could protect Christian America. So it was important you know, to protect the nation on the, the battlefields in Vietnam against the perils of communism, but also to, to lead and to guide the family and the church. And so it all kind of came together. And what we see is kind of this, this aggressive, uh, almost warrior masculinity kind of moves to the center of um, a conservative evangelicalism. And that kind of persists take some interesting twists and turns but up to the present. How did people like Dobson square this with traditional social justice Christianity? Because it really has nothing at all to do with, with, with that fundamental aspect of Christianity. No, no, it doesn't. But what we see happening in the 1960s and the 1970s is a growing divide between 
kind of progressive evangelicalism or the social justice Christianity. And so you do have some white evangelicals uh, who would become affiliated with sojourners, the evangelical left, who are, are, are preaching a very different Christianity, a very different evangelicalism at this time. They are anti-war. They have huge problems with what the uh, American government is doing and the, the U.S. military is doing in Vietnam. Uh, so they're advocating for um, pacifism and for women's rights and for civil rights. But within the conservative stream, you, you see this real doubling down on um, – uh, kind of what, what comes to be the religious right, conservative politics, and and they're very concerned with properly structuring authority. And uh, this is where we have the the kind of anti civil rights movement, the opposition to uh, to civil rights, and and this this movement kind of coalesces in a way that they understand this to be God's will. God wants a well ordered society a well-structured society, and, and this really uh, feeds into uh, a different movement. And so what I'm talking about in the book, the kind of fracturing of the nation, white evangelicals are, are first fractured as a movement, and then they come to define their particular set of values as God-given, as righteous, and as traditionally American. And there's this uh, a, a real separation between the social justice tradition and what becomes conservative white evangelicalism. It's interesting the way they try to base it in traditionalism, because it seems that there's a fundamental flaw in that argument, in that in a traditional sense, those that practiced that in the past didn't know any better. There really wasn't an alternative. It was the way things had evolved. Once there was an alternative— then it wasn't traditional anymore. There was an artificiality to it, a political agenda to it that was very different than, than what we might find in the 40s and 50s. So evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, talk a lot about tradition, right? Traditional masculinity, traditional femininity, but they do so with no awareness of the very recent invention of, you know, this quote-unquote traditional masculinity. So as a historian, if you look back in time, if you look back through Christian history, if you look back through American history, you can see that there were many different and contradictory understandings of how to be a Christian, how to be a Christian man. I mean, if you want to use the word traditional, traditionally through much of American history, the idea of Christian manhood entailed ideas of self-restraint, right? This gentlemanly ideal that you needed to be mature and control your impulses. And, and that begins to uh, kind of shift in the late 19th century, early 20th century for a variety of reasons. There are economic changes that are um, kind of redefining what men do. They're not working with their hands anymore. They're not kind of living out this rugged ideal. And so they start to question their masculinity. And then churches respond. And, and as, as Americans accept this more rugged masculinity, American Christians, too, kind of embrace that. But there was an earlier precedent for this, and that you can find in the American South. In the American South, you have uh, the development of this white patriarchy that embraces uh, kind of dominance and power that is required, uh, in the exertion of power in order to control threats. 
Uh, and in the South, that was a, a kind of white patriarchy that was meant to control women, children, and uh, African-Americans. And that uh, kind of strand does continue through American evangelicalism because American evangelicalism was very strong in the American South. And by mid-century, you see a lot of Southerners moving out to the West Coast, to Southern California and Arizona. And that actually becomes the seedbed for the rise of the religious right. And so, so in American history, you have different constructions of masculinity and Christian manhood. But you can also find kind of the origins of this more militant patriarchal view. And and we have to understand the role that race plays in that as well. Which is the other thing that I, that's really a key part of this is race. Talk about that. Yes. So evangelicals, when you hear them talk about family values, when you hear them talk about Christian manhood, you will not hear much explicit talk of race. But I argue that it's implicitly uh, it just saturates their understanding of of masculinity and of of authority. And one of the first clues where I began to realize this was the heroes that evangelicals like to celebrate. Uh, evangelicals love their heroes when it comes to understanding Christian manhood. And this really struck me when I first started reading their books on on manhood, and they have published and sold millions of copies of these advice manuals on how to be a Christian man. And what struck me was for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, they didn't actually reference the Bible very much in these books. You know, there'd be a Bible verse sprinkled here or there, but they loved to hold up heroes, heroic, often mythical men uh, who could inspire them and that they argued offered the blueprint for Christian masculinity. These were kind of warriors, um, soldiers, cowboys were their favorite, um, and Hollywood movies were really helpful for kind of uh, this, this mythology, for, for constructing it. And their favorites are Mel Gibson's Braveheart, they love William Wallace, and John Wayne, and that's where the book gets its title. And all of these heroes, I, I realized, ended up being white men. Again, they weren't saying this explicitly, but often, and here, here's John Wayne coming in as well, white men who would bring order through violence or the threat of violence, uh, and usually by subduing non-white populations. So you've got, you know, the cowboy, the good guys versus the bad guys, subduing Native Americans, or uh, in, in the case of Vietnam, uh, so the Green Berets, you know, subduing uh, Asian populations. And you can just kind of see this model of white masculinity where the white man is, has the God-given role to be the protector. And to do that, he has to be tough and he has to resort to violence for the greater good. And then the ends will justify the means. So these heroes are, are unfailingly white men. And then when I went back to history, I started to understand in the 1960s and 1970s, evangelicals were deeply concerned with what they understood to be this, the erosion of the social order. And for many of these Southern evangelicals and for some Northern evangelicals as well, the civil rights movement was really threatening their understanding of a proper social order. Um, desegregation of schools was deeply concerning, and that's why you see a lot of conservative evangelicals starting up Christian schools at the time because they were essentially uh, segregated academies. And so race is there. And then once you start looking for it, you can see how it persists 
in their understanding of authority and masculinity. And talk a little bit about how it morphed into a political agenda. And and we can even see how race has had a direct impact as we look at the reaction of this community to to a black president. Oh, yes. Yes. uh, The presidency of of Barack Obama was very disturbing to many conservative uh, white evangelicals, in part because they saw uh, in his election the defection of some of their uh, younger white evangelicals. Uh, they were deeply concerned that some younger white evangelicals had crossed over and, and voted for the Democratic candidate for Barack Obama. And so you see this real backlash emerging after uh, the 2008 election. And they're very explicit about that. They just doubled down their writing books, their preaching sermons, like there is no justification. You cannot defect. And the um, animosity towards Barack Obama is is really uh, strong uh, during this time. And, and you can see where that then kind of feeds into this support for Donald Trump eight years later. Uh, but it's not just the personal thing against uh, President Obama. Really, so many of their policies, if, if you look at, at polling data, um, consistently white evangelicals, will uh, be suspicious of uh, systemic racism and and its effects on the American nation. They are much less likely to believe, for example, today that African-Americans are subject to uh, police brutality at greater rates than other Americans. Uh, You know, white uh, conservative evangelicals tend to think that they are the most persecuted demographic in the American nation. And uh, so... You can see this. Oh, and and law enforcement too. In terms of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, very strong support for law enforcement, for border control, these sorts of things, because their whole ideology has kind of grown out of this celebration of the assertion again of white masculine power that can enforce order, and uh, that uh, what was really interesting as I was reading was just how intimately connected these political stances are on border control, on gun control, on race, uh, with more intimate details, more intimate commitments, with their idea of what is a proper family. And they're very explicit about connecting these. You need to shore up the, the father's authority in the home, the husband's authority over his wife, in order that men can have this strong leadership and a powerful ego so that they can do all of these other things on the national stage and international stage. And then how do women justify being part of this group? <laughs> yes, so this is not just white evangelical men who are advancing yeah. this cause, not at all. And uh, women have a place in this. It's a subservient place. Um, They are to be protected by the militant uh, masculine protector. And so their job is to prop up the egos of their husbands um, and to satisfy them, often sexually. That's that's a, a, a key theme in a lot of writing on evangelical family issues, that men have aggressive sexual needs. And uh, those need to be contained within heterosexual marriage. And so while women need to be very pure before they're married and be absolutely sure not to tempt uh, men that they are not married to, as soon as they do become, as soon as they do get married, then it's their job to meet their husband's sexual needs so that he is not tempted. 
Um, so what does this do for women, you may ask? Uh, because we, we really see in the 1960s and 70s when this ideology starts to, to really uh, come together, that women are often uh, the ones who are, are kind of leading this uh, effort. Women like um, Phyllis Schlafly was a Catholic, but she was a critical thinker in this and helped kind of frame these ideas for evangelicals as well. Beverly LaHaye is another example. Maribel Morgan, they were writing advice books to women for how God called women to be you know, supportive wives, to be obedient. And women have this critical role, the supportive role in order to bolster masculine leadership. And many, many women understood this to be God's will for their lives. And that they needed to, they played an essential role, not just in in kind of holding families together by supporting their husbands, but they're, again, these these women uh, writing advice manuals for for other Christian women were very explicit that this was a critical role for the American nation, that Christian women had to support their their husbands, um, uh, uh, kind of support their egos, so that men could could be fearless and aggressive and strong and defend America, uh, and it was it was really shocking to see that. Um, but many women found found meaning in that. They found purpose in that. And at a time when the feminist movement was kind of shaking things up for women and saying, "Hey, you you should be doing other things. You shouldn't just be in the home. You know, the world is your oyster. Go go um, achieve." Many women. You know, maybe middle-aged women who had, didn't have much of an education, had been raising children. That really wasn't much of an option. And so they felt devalued by that. You know, is my life not enough? And this conservative ideology really gave meaning and purpose to women who, by choice or, or, um, or not at all by their choice, had ended up as, as housewives. To what extent have millennials and Gen Z bought into this? Less. So than earlier generations, I think it's really tricky to know, though, because you'll often see, you know, in, in surveys on on evangelical politics, you, you often see less commitment uh, among younger evangelicals. But then those younger evangelicals sometimes grow up into older evangelicals, and so you always have to be careful at you know, uh, kind of foretelling the end of an ideology or the end of these political commitments. But I think uh, certainly among uh, younger gener- the younger generation right now, I think that there is less of a hold on, on those folks. And partly because in the book I talk about how evangelical culture is kind of the primary vehicle through which these values are perpetuated. So through popular books, through Christian movies, uh, Christian radio, And this has been enormously significant in shaping white evangelical identity for the past half century. People outside of this culture probably have no clue, but anybody who's been part of the evangelical subculture, as it's often referred to, know what I'm talking about here. You're just, you can be fully immersed in this. I think that's changing now for younger evangelicals, you know, with the internet, with social media, with, it's much harder to be growing up in a, a kind of bubble, an evangelical bubble, where really almost all of your your sources of information and cultural formation are being filtered through this evangelical culture. Uh, for many people my age, so I'm in my 40s and people older, it was very possible to grow up almost completely isolated in this evangelical world. 
So for that reason, I think that it's not, it just doesn't have a strong hold on younger evangelicals today who are exposed to more ideas, who are connected to different people who don't share these values. And so I I think that uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next five or 10 years. Is it fair to say that this, this Trump period that we've been in is in some ways the apogee of this culture and that it's all downhill from here, given the changing demographics? You know, uh, as a historian, I'm terrible at predicting the future. <laughs> so I want to be very careful, but it, it does feel like, right. uh, you know, where can it go from here except down? It's it's really hard to, to know. That said, what I can say from looking back in time is that, you know, the death of conservative evangelicalism or the religious right has been foretold multiple times, and it's been celebrated by liberals multiple times. But because this whole ideology is premised on a kind of a warfare model, very us versus them, and the stakes are always you know, incredibly high, cosmic, then the more embattled evangelicals feel the the uh, more violently and aggressively they're willing to fight and the more money they're willing to contribute to these organizations who will fight for them and time and again you see so in the 1990s the power of these evangelical or conservative coalitions seems to be eroding the cold war is over and you know clinton's in the white house but with Clinton in the White House, you can see them really you know, start to mobilize because of their their hatred for the Clintons and all that they seem to stand for. I see this over and over again that when they feel most embattled, that's when they're at their strongest. So what's interesting with the Trump presidency is they've got their guy in the White House now. So normally that's where you would expect some of that uh, kind of energy to start to dissipate with with uh, George W. Bush. We saw that, too, uh, because there's not as much fighting that they need to do. But I think Trump is different because he keeps that that uh, militant rhetoric and that through his anger and through his you know uh, talk of being under attack and he's going to protect them. He just continues to fuel that. And so even though they hold a lot of power right now and have access to a great amount of power, this this perception of being besieged, of being persecuted, continues to fuel the movement. So it's it's really hard to predict what will happen if this is just going to fizzle out. But historically speaking, there's very little precedent for that, that when they feel weak or embattled, that's when they're really going to come together and fight. And they've done so successfully time and again. And yet right now at this inflection point, because of the coronavirus, something seems to be different. You know, it's it's very curious how uh, evangelicals have responded because, you know, they've talked a lot about the need to protect, you know, to protect their families, to protect their nation. Um, and often the threats were, you know, external. We have to protect from communism or they were kind of an imagined threat of you know, feminism, secular humanism. Not that there aren't feminists, there weren't quote-unquote secular humanists, but the threat that was constructed was was really disproportional. Now we have a, a very legitimate threat to American lives in in the form of, of a virus, 
And yet their behavior is not, you know, let's fight this virus and let's protect. It's, it's, it's following a very different script, which is still this, this kind of militancy and rallying around the leader and not trusting science, not trusting the media. And there's, there's a long history of this within the movement. Uh, that said, I, I think you're asking, you know, how long can this mentality uh, persist when the reality uh, is going to be impossible to ignore. And initially with the virus, it, it really affected blue states or blue cities more. And we're right at the moment where we're starting to see it really take off in in red states, in more conservative areas, in rural America. And so that's going to be a real question of how they process this reality. Is it is it going to shake the hold of, of their ideological lens or or are they going to continue to see what is happening through the framework of, of this, this ideology? And again, I, I can't emphasize enough how much this conservative subculture, this evangelical subculture, has their own sources of information, their own media. And some of that is, is explicitly Christian, Christian radio, Christian magazines. Um, but much of it is also, quote unquote, secular, Fox News and talk radio. And so it's a really interesting moment to see what, how they are going to be defining their reality and who's going to be shaping that in the next weeks and months. Kristen Dumay, her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne. Kristen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.